The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu. If you have grown in a household which had decent quality of life, and now you're struggling, you cannot even match the degree of well-being that your parents have achieved, this is a very obvious thing. And this is what makes people to feel completely dissatisfied with the system that we have now. Welcome to the Democracy Paradox podcast. This is my daddy. My name is Justin Kemp, and I am your host as we explore the Democracy Paradox. Over the past few years, scholars have warned about a crisis of democracy. However, others have warned about an even larger crisis that encompasses politics, but affects the wider society as well. Peter Turchin is one of those scholars. He warns that America has entered a period of crisis that is likely to get worse in the coming years. In fact, back in 2010, he wrote an article for Nature where he predicted widespread social unrest in the 2020s. Recent events such as growing political polarization and the events on January 6th as well as the pandemic and its aftermath, have led many to believe he was right. Still, I'm reluctant to describe our situation as political disintegration, and I certainly would not say that we are in end times. However, that's precisely how Peter Turchin puts it in his new book, End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. Peter is a complexity scientist who has established a new field of social science research called cliodynamics. Peter talks more about cliodynamics at the end of this episode, but suffice it to say, it's a way of using large data sets and models to analyze history. Nonetheless, I still have my doubts about some of Peter's ideas. But after talking to him, I found he's got some important insights. So whether you agree or disagree with him, I hope this conversation will provide a perspective worth considering. If you like this episode, please consider becoming a monthly supporter at Patreon or a paid subscriber on Apple Podcasts. You'll access a growing library of bonus episodes. But more importantly, you'll help the podcast continue to produce its regular content. I'm literally counting on people like you to help support the podcast. Like always, you can send questions or comments to jkempf at democracyparadox.com. But for now, this is my conversation with Peter Turchin. Peter Turchin, welcome to the Democracy Paradox. Thank you, Justin. Well, Peter, your book was really interesting. It's called End Times Elites counter-elites, and the path of political disintegration. But 
it's hard to find a place to really start the conversation. So what I'd like to do is begin with something that's not really part of your book. Back in 2010, you made a very famous forecast about conflict coming in the 2020s. We're now in the year 2023. Want to know from you, in your opinion, how did your forecast hold up? Sure. Well, let me just say that we live in these wonderful, complex societies. And in principle, they are capable of delivering high quality of life to the majority of the population. But complex societies, as our historical analysis shows, always get to the point of breakdown, end times. And so right now, we are in such end times. Why? That's the big question. The common theme that we found in analyzing hundreds of past societies entering into crisis and then emerging from it, the common theme is elite overproduction. And that is what I saw when I made that forecast in 2010. At that point, I and my team have been studying, as I said, at that point, only dozens of societies. Since then, we have built up our sample size. And we found those common themes. And people kept asking me, well, where are we? And I didn't want to go there in the beginning. But eventually, I broke down. And I started putting the numbers through their pieces, so to speak. And I was shocked, truly shocked. This was late around 2007, 2008. The numbers were showing that we were clearly on the path to the crisis. So that's why I decided to publish this forecast. And since 2010, periodically, people would come and ask me, where are we? And every time I would look at the numbers, and we were still on the same path to what usually leads to political disintegration. And I was saying, yeah, we are still on track, unfortunately. There's been no trend reversals that would give much hope that this is not happening. And then, of course, 2020 happened. Do you consider to be 2020 the inflection point of the real crisis, or do you think that the crisis is still ahead of us? Well, the inflection point is actually late 1970s. That's when a number of indicators, including elite overproduction and also the trends for the popular well-being, for the well-being for the majority of the population, that's when they changed trends. Our social systems are very inertial. It takes a long time for them to develop. Similarly, the 2020s is also, it's not going to be just 2020, one year, one day even, or whatever. No, again, our analysis of past societies shows that it takes multiple years, sometimes between one and two decades, actually, most of the time between 10 and 20 years, to turn around. And that is why I think in response to your question, that we still have more turbulence to come. And the reason for that is not just my feeling and not just statistical patterns, although that's, of course, part of the answer, but also that I see no evidence that the fundamental trends that drive turbulence and social disintegration, that they have been reversed. We have not got to that point yet. So I want to press you a little bit on this, because if we're talking about social turbulence and crisis in moments like what happened at the Capitol on January 6th, if we're talking about just increased polarization between the political parties. I mean, I can definitely 
foresee something like that happening. But if you're talking about a complete just disintegration of society itself, that America is going to completely collapse and become some kind of anarchic state, that comes across as a little bit hyperbolic. So I want to get a sense of what you mean by end times, because you even said we're approaching end times. I mean, are we approaching end times of one epoch and about to head into another, but it's still going to be a continuation of the American state, or are you talking about a complete collapse of society? Exactly. End times are often also the times of new beginnings. And therefore, I am actually an optimist by nature, and I hope that our society will find a way to leave this crisis without too much bloodshed. However, if we look at the societies in the past, we can do statistics on that. So we have quantified the degree of breakdown by using a scale of about 10 points, from 0 to 10. And very deep collapse is fairly rare, but most societies experience very serious collapse. So population declines, there sometimes even loss of cultural sophistication. Certainly, bloody civil wars and social revolutions are very common. But in maybe 10-15% of the cases, the societies manage to pull together. Some pro-social elites come forward and convince the rest of the elites that they need to avoid revolution from below by proposing reforms from above. And we have studied several cases such as this. So, for example, the New Deal in the United States, the Chartist period in the UK, you can go as far back as the Roman Republic when the elites there put together to solve the problems with the population. So this is not a common outcome, but it is possible to avoid the worst. I guess one of the other reasons why I wonder if this is a little bit hyperbole is because America has had many different moments where people come together and make dramatic reforms. You mentioned the New Deal, but we could also talk about the civil rights movement in the 1960s, as well as the Vietnam War protests that were around the same period that had a lot of changes that empowered youth and lowered the voting age to 18. We could talk about the generation before the New Deal in terms of the progressive movement that added a number of different constitutional amendments. It feels like almost every generation has a challenge before it and has some moment of political crisis that they have to overcome. So why would the 2020s be any different? What we have learned is that the road to crisis seems to be quite channelized. It's like a valley with steep slopes and the ball rolling down the valley really doesn't have anywhere to go but to crisis. But once you get to the crisis, then you get to your cusp and a whole lot of different avenues opens up. And that's what I mean, that there is a whole spectrum of possible solutions. And American history illustrates that. We can compare the crisis of 1850s that led to a bloody civil war, 600,000 people dead. And the early 20th century, in fact, I tend to think about the progressive era and the New Deal as really one part and parcel of the whole. Because many of the legislations that were set in stone during the New Deal, they were proposed, discussed, and even tried during the progressive year. So here we have two examples, two possible pathways for us today. We can either end up in a really 
bad civil war, resulting in perhaps fragmentation of the United States. See, I mean, when you look at historical periods before revolutions, before French Revolution, before Russian Revolution, and so on and so on and so forth, before uh, American Civil War, those people could not imagine that they were about to get into the body thing. They have uh, been uh, extremely uh, incautious, and the result was uh, a horrible tragedy. And this is what I hope that we would be able to avoid. Your book introduces a lot of concepts that listeners will not be familiar with. You've already mentioned a few of them. Quite a few of the concepts center around the idea of elites. You talk about elite overproduction. You talk about elite aspirants. Why don't we start with the idea of who are the elites in your mind? Like, is it specific type of elites or like, how do you define it? That's right. I use this neutral sociological definition. Elites are simply a small proportion of the population who concentrate social power in their hands. And examples could be the proverbial 1% in America, the Mandarin class in imperial China, or military nobility in medieval France. All those elite concentrated the different types of social power, such as military, administrative, economic, and ideological. So those are the four types of social power that explain how societies really operate. So the key question about the elites is how they are recruited and reproduced. Where do new elites come from? And this is where the crux of the problem is. There's always more elite wannabes, the elite aspirants in our more scientific jargon, than there are elite positions. And that's normal. But when the disbalance between the elite aspirants, the number of aspirants, and the fairly fixed number of power positions, think about it. We only have 100 senators, 235 representatives, one president, and so on and so forth. So that number is fairly fixed. But what if you start getting not just 20%, 50%, but two times, three times, four times as many elites as there are positions? So it's like a game of musical chairs in which musical chairs are kept at constant number, but the number of players keep increasing. And so you can imagine a larger and larger proportion of those elite wannabes are going to be frustrated. They become angry, and many of them turn into what we call counter-elites. That's the second segment of population who is willing to challenge the system and to try to even overthrow the unjust social order that led to their positions. And that is why elite overproduction is so dangerous for political stability. Now, in the United States, there's a somewhat fixed number of political office holders that exist, but there are many other types of elites. I mean, we could talk about in business, we could talk about in academia, we could talk about in culture. Even within government, I mean, there's a number of different bureaucracies that exist today that exhibit political power that didn't exist 100 years ago, some that didn't exist 10 years ago. So do some elites matter more than others? Are we talking only about political office holders? Or are we talking about other types of positions that also exhibit political, social, economic power? Yes, we are talking about all the different types of elites. I mentioned the four different sources of social power, and therefore 
There are four types of elites that specialize in each. Political powers tends to be the most important because if we have a system that ensures elite rotation in the political sphere, then that leads to political stability. And when there are too many people willing to change the political system, that leads to the breakdown of political system and with potentially dire consequences. But in other spheres, same thing happens. If you think about it, there is 500 CEOs of Fortune 500. The number of successful companies can grow, but it can grow not as much as the number of potential CEO wannabes. And the same thing in the ideological sphere. There is a huge competition for positions either in you know, established newspapers and channels or in the new media. So again, there is a competition between those things. So some competition is good. It's sort of nonlinear. It's excessive competition that is bad. So for example, why do we have now such an outbreak of canceling culture and things like that? That can be traced to elite overproduction leading to very intense competition. And again, intense competition leads to the breakdown of social norms that govern it, whether it's in the political sphere. And we see the politicians like Trump here or Boris Johnson, UK, and so on, who are willing to break the rules to get ahead. And the same thing we see in other spheres. So in academia, it has been terrible because there has been a lot of cancellation and it is partially driven by the huge overproduction of PhDs, for example. So, yes, to answer your question, in all of those spheres, excessive competition leads to socially dysfunctional outcomes. So you're studying over a very long period of time. You describe it sometimes as like a 10,000-year overview that you're trying to study. Society has obviously changed a lot over that period of time. A few of the traits that the United States has that older generations did not have would be democracy and capitalism. And I bring those up because capitalism in particular, I think of as a way to try to deal with elite overproduction because it allows people to create startups on their own so that if they feel like they can't move up within an established company, you can go start your own company. And many of the wealthiest billionaires that exist today are people who did start their own company, people like Mark Zuckerberg, people like Bill Gates. You could go on and on about those different people. Democracy does the same thing, where instead of having a fixed number of positions that are guaranteed for life, such as in an aristocracy, you have the ability to be able to change office and different people hold positions for fixed periods of time. So it allows you to be able to bring in an even larger number of elites than previously would have existed in past societies. Does democracy and capitalism work that way? In your model, like, do you see those as allowing a greater number of elites than previously would have existed in past societies? Well, I think the most important thing here is not really uh, elites, but um, well-being. But let me step back. Yes, we have studied hundreds of societies over the past 10,000 years. And the one interesting pattern that has emerged is that the severity of collapses and or breakdowns. I don't actually, I'm not a collapsologist. So different people understand different things under collapse. And remember, 
Perhaps, as uh, generally understood, there's only one potential outcome from these types of crisis. Anyway, the degree of social breakdown seems to be getting less deep and less prolonged as we go in time. So a cultural evolution has apparently accumulated enough institutions that allow our societies to be less fragile. And democratic institutions are clearly one part of that parcel. Also, the more productive economies, such as brought about by capitalism, whatever one means by that, but certainly over the past 200 years, human societies became economically much more productive. So that brings the promise of much greater well-being. The problem is that just by themselves, capitalism and democracy are not going to automatically ensure that we escape really serious problems. Think about the United States in the 1850s. It was decently democratic societies. Yes, they had slavery. There was all kinds of problems. But also, they had a democratic system of governance, which was unable to deal with the pressures at the time. So that's the same thing why we don't want necessarily today to assume that things will take care of themselves automatically. Historical experience shows it always takes a very contentious period. And by the way, those periods when societies avoid, avoid the worst outcomes, they tend to be much longer. It takes 20, 30, 40 years often. So like, for example, you're talking about the beginning of the century, the 20th century United States. It took um, almost 40 years to work out the approaches to solving this problem. Same thing during the Chartist period in the middle 19th century in UK. So it is possible to avoid the worst, but it takes a lot of work. It takes some social segments of the elites who would lead and the population who puts pressure on the elites to find the right solutions. So. One of the things in my mind when I think about elite overproduction is going to be the way that demographics seem to be changing all around us. People are having fewer children, but people are also living much longer. How does changing demographics affect the models that you run and how crises would actually occur? Well, the road to crisis is still pretty much the same, but the demographics does have a strong effect. In fact, the theory that we use is called structural demographic, because you have to understand what happens to both democracy and structural indicators. In particular, there is a well-known process in sociology, which is called the youth bulge. Youth bulges are very destabilizing, and youth busts the opposite. The dangerous people are people in their 20s, maybe early 30s. So those are typically who become revolutionary troops. You need them to push a radical agenda. And if you don't have such a youth bulge, then the pressures for instability decline. This is not the main factor, however. It's one of the secondary factors that modify things. Wouldn't the aging population then work against that model and say that we're probably even with all the problems that we're having, that we just don't have enough young people to actually push forward a revolutionary movement or even a civil war? It's not working against the model. It's part of the model. The model allows you to take the different variables 
and show their effect. So if you have a youth bulge, then the model predicts higher potential for crisis. If you don't have a youth bulge, it shows lower potential. So I agree that because, let me put it this way, the youth bulge we have, but it's subsiding. This youth bulge has been more prevalent during the 20 teens. It is the shadow effect of the baby boomer generation. The children of baby boomer generation, if you look at the data, they had a bulge and it was towards the late 20 teens, and now it is subsiding. So this is one of the factors that shows that the probability of really severe outcomes is gradually declining. But again, it is just a secondary factor. major drivers, popular immiseration and elite reproduction, they are still operating and there is nothing to stop those from continuing to push us to the brink. At the same time, it does feel that the youth bulge may work differently in the future because people have lived so much longer that they're holding on to those positions at much older ages. We look at our own political offices. We have a president who's in his 80s. We've got Many congressmen, senators who are in their 70s and 80s that in past generations would have been people who were in their 40s and 50s oftentimes. So people are having to keep pushing back expectations of when they're going to have their opportunity to be able to be in office, to be able to have political power, being able to move into elite positions. And so more and more elites are typically older people and elite aspirants are now far younger people. How has that kind of aging demographics really changed things in terms of elite aspirants and elite overproduction? Yeah, that's a very good point. This is the dark side of the aging population. The established elites live longer, stay healthier for long times, and therefore are less willing to move from their positions. So we see this in the politics. We see this, for example, I I'm an academic. We see the same thing in academic. But this part is already part of the model. Remember that electoral production is a relative thing. We want to see how many positions, so for example, how many positions in academia are there and how many people who are looking to find one such position. And so this disbalance is explained by several factors. So in academia, the disbalance is really very bad right now. Partly for the reason that you mentioned, because the older professors tend to stay on, but also because there are fewer young people to go to the universities, so fewer people pay tuition, and therefore this is also the reason why we have fewer academic positions for newly admitted PhDs. So that's essentially how it's working out in this particular field. So let's take that to the next step, which is if you have a lot of young elite aspirants, that are not moving into traditional elite positions, you say that they become counter-elites. What does that mean? What is a counter-elite? Yeah, well, first of all, let's take one particular type of young people with advanced degrees, the lawyers, recent graduates from law schools. Now, this is important because in the United States, for example, and in many countries, There are two routes in modern societies, modern demographic societies, into a political office. One of them is wealth, which is very important in the United States, but less important, let's say, in Europe. And the second one is educational credentials. 
Now, in the United States, the most important educational credential that you want to get if you want to enter the politics is the law degree. By the way, in ancient Rome, it was the same thing. It's actually quite uh, common. Well, if you look at the distribution of starting salaries from the law school graduates, back 30 years ago, it was not a remarkable thing, but by 2000, the overproduction of lawyers has resulted in the emergence of two groups, the winners and losers. So today, there is about one quarter of law graduates they get great salaries, like 190000 and they are clearly on their ways to the elites. But then the majority of the population is way below that, around 60K or so. And there's nobody in between. So there is two clear classes, the winners and losers. The losers are those who will not be able to pay off the loans that they had to get to finish law school. So there are no jobs for them. They are crushed by debt. What are they going to do? Well, as it happens, most of the great revolutionaries were lawyers. Think about, for example, Robespierre, Lenin, Castro, Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer, and Gandhi also. So what we have created, not purposely, but just inadvertently, is a huge class of frustrated elite aspirants who are smart, highly educated, energetic, ambitious. And there is nothing for them to do. And that is the class that traditionally served as the source of radicals and the revolutionaries. And if you look at some of the more radical people in the United States, on both left and right, curiously enough, Yale Law School seems to be the most disproportionate producer of fairly radical politicians on both sides of the aisle currently. So that's a very dangerous condition. Let me push back a little bit about the Yale Law School being so radical, because the Yale Law School is going to produce people that can get extremely high incomes. I mean, J.D. Vance is a great example. He is somebody who many would call a radical on the political right, but he was working in Silicon Valley and working at a tech job that was paying incredibly well beforehand. He is not somebody who is a dissatisfied elite aspirant. I mean, he is one of the elites. I mean, Yale Law School is producing a really good batting average of elites. It would be the schools that are significantly downstream that would be struggling to be able to do that. I mean, it's not Yale Law School that's producing people that are frustrated at their position. I mean, it's people that are going to small state schools or small private colleges that don't have the same advantages and opportunities as somebody at Yale. Well, even Yale school graduates also fall into two different classes. I blink out at the name of the leader of Oath Keepers, but who has just got 18 years in prison, but he was also a Yale Law School graduate. But you're quite right. I don't want to single out Yale Law School. We really should worry about tens of thousands of law school graduates and who will not even be perhaps known as the great leaders, but they are ready revolutionary troops. So is somebody who's a counter-elite, is it something that they are truly a revolutionary trying to bring down the system, or can it be something that's a little bit milder than that? 
Well, the human mind is unknowable still. We have not yet learned how, especially for historical people. But in a way, this is not terribly important. Whether motivations are purely altruistic or purely selfish, because human minds are very complex and both of these motivations are mixed. So if you think about it, the burning desire for justice is something that you would expect to arise from this mass of frustrated elite aspects. Because clearly they see that, no, I'm not the only one there. The system is rotten. You know, it doesn't work. And then, of course, we have not talked much about popular immiseration, but perhaps now is a good time to bring this in. So capitalism, on one hand, is a great system for ensuring economic growth, but the naked capitalism is a pretty horrible system for distributing the fruits of economic growth. And this is another very important concept in my book. I call it the wealth pump. The question is, how are the fruits of economic growth divided? And there are different historical periods, United States, for example, have shown very different patterns. So after the New Deal and uh, until late 1970s, the wealth pump was not working because workers' salaries were growing together with both their productivity and GDP per capita, which measure similar things. All right. And then something happened in the late 1970s where when the productivity continued to increase, the GDP per capita decreased, but worker salaries have stagnated and even declined. So where did all that extra wealth go? It went to the, well, to the proverbial 1%, but also to the 1% of 1%, even more than that. So essentially, there was this perverse wealth pump, which was pumping wealth from the 90% of the population and pushing it upstairs. And what this creates, this creates a huge feeling of discontent because people see that they are losing. And these are the majority of people. And that's why we see the deaths of despair. That's why we see the support for populist politicians. And so the elite production creates the leaders, but the popular immigration creates the medium in which they can organize and lead those radical social movements. So both of them work together. I'm glad you brought up popular immiseration because it was something I was hoping to get to next. That brings me to wonder whether the real problem that you're talking about can really be boiled down to just economic inequality. Like, is economic inequality really just the root of all the problems that we're talking about here? Or is it just a symptom of an even larger problem? Yes, to me, economic inequality, growing economic inequality, after all, for the great majority of humans are against completely egalitarian societies because there is a feeling that those who work harder and so on, they should get rewarded more. So growing economic inequality is one of the indicators, but it is a surface indicator. Because what really is driving, when you have overproduction of wealthy elites, wealth people, wealth holders, and runaway inflation of their numbers and their incomes, and at the same time, you have stagnating and even declining conditions for the majority of the population, this is something more than inequality. In fact, if you think about inequality, especially like Gini index, 
It's just people are very hard. There's been some studies that show that people are non-specialists, which means 99%. It's very difficult for them to gauge what is the degree of inequality. In effect, people always misunderstand it and misestimate it. But if you have grown in a household which had decent quality of life, and now you're struggling, you cannot even match the degree of well-being that your parents have achieved, this is a very obvious thing. And this is what makes people to feel completely dissatisfied with the system that we have now. This is much, much more immediate naked thing than some kind of a genius number. That's completely fair. I mean, I don't want to boil things down to numbers. I mean, I want to boil things down to the meaning behind those numbers, obviously. But it does feel that there's a really simple solution to all of this, which is tax the wealthy significantly higher and redistribute that wealth to people at the bottom. Now, I think that that's probably oversimplifying things, but I want to hear from you whether or not it really is just that simple in your mind. Well, it's not that simple. This is the reason why we need a science of history. Because, you know, it's one thing to sit here and wave our arms and try to say that. And then, you know, yes, what you should say, the others would say, oh, you are a Marxist because you want to, you hate the wealthy. And there's all kinds of things that people will tell you in response to that. But since we have some idea about how past societies got out of it, we can use that as a guideline. And in fact, in all the successful and also unsuccessful cases, remember that when you have a bloody civil war, like in America, it resulted in the destruction of the ruling class. The antebellum United States ruling class was the southern slaveholders in collaboration with northeastern merchants who shipped cotton to Europe and so on and so forth. Well, these people, first of all, they had a huge mortality. Uh, and secondly, after the end of the war, they were destroyed as a ruling class because their wealth, the slaves, were taken away from them. So the same thing, you look at great revolutions, they turn off the wealth pump in a particularly bloody way, usually by exterminating the elites. So this is why it's good to have some examples where the elites themselves managed to get enough collective action to avoid those things. And the end result, it took them sometimes more than one generation, actually, to accomplish it, 30, 40 years, as I said, but they achieved those more optimal outcomes by shutting down the wealth pump. And that is why we had the period of unparalleled prosperity following the New Deal, well, following the end of the World War II, of course. There was about 30 years, the French called the glorious 30 when our societies worked extremely well. So, in answer to your question, it's going to be very difficult. Because in order to shut the wealth pump, it means that the people in power will have to give up all that extra wealth and power and so on and so forth. This is going to take a very difficult political process with many sectors of the elites fighting bitterly to the end against any such thing. So it's not simple at all to do these types of things. And also... You don't need to take the historical lessons literally. You don't need to do the same thing as the New Deal. No, you need to understand the principles and then adapt those principles to our current situation, which is quite different to what was prevailing in the United States 100 years ago. 
One of the things that bothered me when I was reading through your book was that when we talk about elite overproduction, it gives me the impression that what we need to do is give fewer opportunities to people to move into the elites. That what we need to do is have fewer elite aspirants by telling them that you just belong in the masses, that you shouldn't have the opportunity to move into political power or move into a position of authority. There are parts that feel anti-democratic. So I want to give you a chance to respond to that. Like, how is it that we can continue to give people opportunities while still managing elite overproduction? In many ways. But let's first look again at the connection between immiseration and elite overproduction. Why do we have so many people seeking to get advanced degrees? Some of that is because people are ambitious. They're always ambitious people. But there are also some not so terribly ambitious people whose ambition really is to escape immiseration, to escape precarity. Now that a huge proportion of the American population lives under the conditions of precarity, that creates the push for those people to escape. And that is why we have so many people going to colleges and so on and so forth. I have taught, I just retired a year ago, I have taught at a very good state university, but maybe three quarters of my students were there not because they were interested in the content of education. They were there to get the credentials they needed to compete for a better job in the future. So by turning down the wealth pump and getting the popular well-being back on track, we will diminish this particular push for creating extra elite aspects. Secondly, now our economy is capable of workers become more productive. That means that frees up many new professions that the society can support. I am very partial to the profession of historians. I'm not a historian myself. Cleodynamics, our history of science, needs as many historians as can be trained because we need the data. And also, just think about it. Why not create more historians to do and archaeologists to do their things, publish papers, increase the knowledge? Knowledge is good. Education, when it's separated from credential system, is unadulterated good, in my view. So it doesn't mean that we will be creating elite positions because, you know, a professor in the United States is not a member of the elites, but we will be creating decent positions that would be producing uh, collective good for the society, better scientific knowledge, and also taking those people who are interested in doing, it doesn't have to be just history, of course, uh, pretty much any kinds of sciences and humanities could be supported at a much, much greater rate than we do now. That's fascinating. That's not something that I got from the book. I definitely got the idea that popular immiseration and elite overproduction were working together to produce a crisis, I did not get the impression that by alleviating popular immiseration that you would alleviate the problem simultaneously of elite overproduction. That's actually fascinating. Well, the truth is that in my book, I talk mostly about that the road to crisis, you know, uh, and just the last chapter is talking about solutions, and I am more willing to talk about it extemporaneous rather than put it on paper, because as soon as you start proposing specific things, like you said, let's increase the taxes on the rich, then I'm afraid that 
half of the population's minds will shut with a click. Or if you propose something else, the other half will shut with another click. So that's why I did not want to... And also, I am just an academic, definitely not part of the elites. The solution would have to be worked out in the political sphere. It will be hard to do it, and it will take some real good politicians who are thinking about the broad well-being of the society rather than selfish, narrow interests of the ruling class. So as we look to wrap up, your book was really different in a lot of ways. One of them was that I actually found your appendix to be possibly more fascinating than the actual text of the book. (laughs) Interesting. It's rare (laughs) for that to happen. It's the only time I think it's happened. You know what happened? You know what happened? Uh, The appendix was chapters two and three. And my editor said, you've got to get to the point faster. And so we moved it (laughs) into into those chapters, into the appendix. I didn't want to start out by talking about what cladodynamics are, because I wanted to get to the heart of the conversation. But just as we're wrapping up, do you want to just take a moment and explain what we're talking about when you say that you're running these models and you're coming up with this different ideas? And we've mentioned cladodynamics. Just give the elevator pitch of what exactly that you're doing to come up with these different ideas and models. Yeah, essentially, I would say that if you don't have a science of history, we are doomed to repeating this crisis. This crisis tends to happen every couple of hundred years or so. And so, okay, we go through this one, and then there is another one going to be down the road. So that's why we need to understand our societies as complex systems. So I'm not a historian, I'm a complexity scientist. And it is amazing to me that until maybe 10 or 20 years ago, human history was not mathematized and not, you know, uh, the scientific method was not thrown at it. And the scientific method is not only just creating mathematical models. Even more important, most of my effort over the past modern decade has been into building the databases, historical databases that allow us to test those models. Also, the models have to run with real data. And so we have now, we build something called CrisisDB. It is a crisis database. At this point, it's close to 200 societies and it's growing as they enter into the crisis and then emerge from it. So this is what was the basis that allowed me to make the prediction of the turbulent 2020s. But more importantly, by building up a large library of trajectories, we can get at what should be our post-crisis strategies. Because as I said, whereas the entry into the crisis is quite generalized, then the whole suite of opportunities opens up. Then you want to choose better trajectories. But you cannot do that simply by arguments by analogy, because each society is different. And that means that we have to translate historical data into a model of our society, then tailor that model to society if societies are different, and use that model to calculate the unforeseen consequences of our actions. And I think that's the only way. Well, Peter, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. This has been just a fascinating conversation. I want to plug your book one more time. It's called End Times, Elites, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for writing your book. Thanks, Justin, and I enjoyed this conversation very much. 
If you are listening to the show, please leave a review. It really does help shows like mine stand out. Also, please share the show with colleagues and friends, because word of mouth goes a very long way. Facebook and Twitter are great, but really just talk about it. There's a full transcript at www.democracyparadox.com. Thank you for listening. The Democracy Paradox podcast is sponsored by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. The Kellogg Institute has a 40-year history of excellence in advancing research and education on global democracy and human development. Learn more about the Kellogg Institute, including its world-renowned visiting fellowships for scholars at various stages of their careers at kellogg.nd.edu.